Parenting is work, like a lot of work. And it can be easy to feel like no one understands. Well, as a mom of four, including two newborn twins, <laughs> I'm here to tell you that at the end of the day, we're all figuring it out as we go. You are not alone. I'm Summer Shepherd, and this is, no, seriously, how do I do this? In early July of this year, an Amber Alert went out to Southern Wisconsin, encouraging people to be on the lookout for 10-year-old Cody Dutcher, a sweet little blonde girl. She had gone missing and everyone was scrambling. Everyone was looking for her. Everyone was worried. And within hours of sending out that Amber Alert, she was found. And the most tragic piece of the whole story is that she was found to have taken her own life. And for me, as a mom of young kids, there's that, that part of me, at least, that has always kind of assumed that childhood and early adolescence, this was a time of freedom, of innocence, of joy, right? We, as adults, look back on that time. You're like, man, if I could just go back, I'd be a carefree child again. But the reality is that our children are not always so carefree. They're feeling the pressure. They're feeling mental anguish, mental illness, to a degree that we don't always understand or appreciate or properly address. And so today I want to have a conversation that is hard, but so, so important. This is a conversation I know I'm going to be taking lots of notes on personally, because we are inviting onto, no, seriously, how do I do this? Dr. Melissa Mork. Now, Dr. Mork, she is a professor. She's the chair of the Department of Psychology, Criminal Justice, and Law Enforcement at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. She has written the book, Navigating Grief with Humor, and the book, Self-Care, a mildly interesting, reasonably priced, fairly practical guide to caring for you. <laughs> She's a certified humor professional and a grief coach. And for a little something extra, she once had Jimmy Fallon read her tweet on hashtags and considers that her greatest accomplishment. I, for one, am very impressed. Well, Melissa, I'm so excited that you're here. I'm grateful for what you're going to share with us today and the hope and the help that you're here to offer. So, Melissa, you are more than a professor. You're more than a psychologist. You are a mom. So how many kids do you have? How old are they? My daughter is 20 and my son is 16. Uh, but I need to go back and let you know a little bit about that history. Um, my husband uh, was diagnosed with a very aggressive lung cancer in 2017 and died four months later. And so at that time, my son was 12 when Scott was diagnosed and 13 uh, shortly before Scott died. And my daughter was 17. And so the last couple of years have been pretty rocky uh, in parenting as far as just parenting through their grief and their other really strong emotions uh, so yeah, I have been, I have been parenting hard lately. Oh, wow. You know, I think that's something that I kind of take for granted that kids are able to be kids these days, but it, it, they're not. And we recently had a situation locally where, you know, little Cody, she's 10 years old and, and she was found to have taken her own life. And it just startled me as a mom of young kids because you think like, okay, well, while they're young, they have this innocence and they shouldn't struggle in that same way. But you're saying with your kids too, you struggled with that early on. Yes, yes. And as far as uh, depression in children, my both of my children experienced depression long before my husband ever got sick. 
my son has just kind of, he's dealt with anxiety, social anxiety, especially, uh, and depression from the time he was quite young. And my daughter in kindergarten and again in fourth grade suffered from uh, pretty serious depressive episodes that required intervention that I had to bring her to a therapist to help her get diagnosed and then get treatment for her. So depression in children is a real, is a real thing. Has it always been? Am I just super ignorant or is there something that is shifting to where we're seeing this in kids younger and younger? Well, I think, I think it's a combination of two things. I think that we know more and uh, we are exposed to more dialogue around depression in children, but also I think that times have been changing and especially recently the the stressors of the the time that we're in is uh I think exacerbating the symptoms of depression and anxiety in children for sure. So when you say the season we're in right now as we're recording this we're actually still in the midst of a global pandemic. Yes. <laughs> you know we're home and a lot of us you know I think thought this was going to end a lot sooner than it has. And so there's been this whole season the spring now summer possibly fall as kids are home and away from their friends. So what effect is that social isolation having on our kids? It's significant. When you think about the developmental trajectory of children, peer relationships are so significant. Um, That is why even homeschool families make sure that they're part of a cooperative so that their children have those encounters with other children. And it's not just peer relationships, but it's also the absence of our extended families and our youth pastors and our children's ministers and just all of these support people that come alongside and participate in parenting and nurturing our children have all just kind of vanished. And so our children are definitely isolated, not just from peers, but from extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and so forth. And social isolation, I don't think we realize how significant an impact it can have Let me tell you a little story, Summer, about in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, there were foundling hospitals and orphanages that held to the belief that babies, new babies, should have a blank slate, should not attach, should not bond to any human being until they meet their adoptive parents. And so the medical community in those hospitals would all wear masks and gloves and uh, protective gear to to prevent uh, any transmission of viruses or bacteria to these babies. But also the staff would feed the babies, change their diapers, put them back in their cribs and leave them alone and not hold them, hug them, kiss them, or make eye contact. And the mortality rate of these infants was close to 100%. Because even though their physical needs were being met, there was no social contact needs being met. There was no affection, uh, physical affection. There was no physical touch. There was no eye contact or uh, facial expressions. And so we realized that what we were doing in an attempt to protect those children, we were actually causing a failure to thrive. And I think that's kind of what's happening right now with our children, especially during this global pandemic, is that we are we are protecting them uh, physically, but emotionally there is a cost. And so we need to be very intentional about providing opportunities for our children to safely connect with others so that they don't experience complete social isolation. And of course, we're, you know, as parents, we are 
present with our children, we're engaging with our children, but we cannot be their only means of social connection because it begins to feel like a vacuum. What might that look like in a time like this? And I know there's maybe not an easy answer to that because there's different restrictions and all of that, but what could that look like? So a friend of mine, her little boy is just a social animal. He is a social butterfly. He loves to hang out with his friends. And when all of the schooling went online, the highlight of his day was morning meeting on Zoom. He got to see all of his buddies on Zoom. He could shout out to them. And even that was enough for him to feel connected to his friends. So FaceTime, Zoom, we can integrate technology into our daily habits if it allows for our children to connect with other people. I have a a friend whose teen teenage son is connecting with his buddies through video games. And hey, it's it's something. At least he's maintaining that connection and he's maintaining those friendships. So it might look different. Another friend of mine, her two girls are um, also quite social children and they've been quarantining. And then they realize that their uh, cousins have also been safely quarantining for the same extent, uh, length of time. And so they've decided that they can safely get together and play together because they both had very limited exposure. And so they have just decided that they are going to be connected that way. So I think we can make some wise decisions. Um, there's, there's opportunities to play outside and connect with children outside where it's high ventilation and uh, low risk. So we can be creative in how we find ways to help our children stay connected. Now you brought up technology and that is something I guess I want to talk about because in my experience, at least, I look around and I think that this season of isolation has had a big effect on parents as well. You know, in the beginning, we had plans and color-coded itineraries of what we were yes. going to do with our kids every day, you know, and then, you know, you were three, that four family. months later, oh, we tried, we tried, it lasted a couple of days, no um, which was a win. <laughs> um, but then, you know, eventually parents start to feel fatigued from all of yes. this. And that's when it's like, I can't even, here, here's the tablet, go play. And so we see just, well, in general these days, but probably especially in these last couple months, Mm -hmm. screen time shooting through the roof. And I think, like you said, there are beneficial uses of it where you can connect to family, to friends, um, et cetera. But have you seen screen time play into this shift, this mental shift in our kids and what they're exposed to and what they're feeling and experiencing earlier? Uh, That's a great question. And before COVID hit, I would ask my students in my abnormal psychology class, does screen time have an impact on your anxiety? Uh, does your does screen time have an effect on other emotional experiences? And they would split. They would this the class would split on that. Some would argue, yes, spending too much time on my phone causes my anxiety and depression to increase. And others would say, no, it's an outlet. I think with children, it's a different dynamic with. Older children and teens, they're spending time on Instagram and TikTok and other social media. And what that does is create a really strange social pressure that increases anxiety and depression symptoms because Mm -hmm. they are looking at everybody else's highlight reels and they are living their own behind the scenes footage, if you know what I mean. And so there's that constant social pressure to conform and to be better and nobody feels like they're measuring up. For younger children, I think the screen time, if it's educational, if it's entertaining, 
I see less risk. However, there's less engagement then with the outside world, with the parents, with other people, with the pets, with paper and pencil and crayon and Play-Doh. And I think that those different tactile experiences in young children are absolutely necessary and are diminished if we are relying on screens too much. And so I think technology can be beneficial, but it can also be a fallback. And as an aside, can I just say that parental screen time is more damaging to children than the children's screen time? Oh, yes. If I am looking at my phone and not making eye contact with my young child when they are trying to get my attention, I am parenting poorly. I need to set that phone down. I need to make my child my priority. And just like you limit their screen time, you must limit your own screen time when you are able, as long as it's not related to work. And you can pick your phone back up and go on social media after you've tucked that child into bed. But in when you are with your child, your phone should be secondary. Oh, that is so good. It's actually a conversation, a hard conversation that my husband and I have been having lately because we recognize those tendencies in ourselves too. You know, being yeah. a, a product of our generation, we're both millennials. And so we kind of grew up where we had that sunny childhood where we're playing until the streetlights come on. But yes. then as we entered junior high, high school, the technology, then the social media. And then we got sucked into that and we're definitely not innocent. And so we feel that with our kids. And then we watch our kids want that. And we don't have iPads for our kids yet. They're three and five. We don't have anything like that, but we still see them craving it. And it freaks me out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I know where they're seeing it modeled. And so I think that is such a good point. You know, I look to my kids, like I mentioned, three and five years old. Mm-hmm. And then I look at little Cody, 10 years old, and she, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that much older than my kids. They're going to no. be there before we know it. And to think that a little girl like that could have found herself feeling so desperate, desperate. so young that she felt there was no other way. It just, it breaks me as a mom. Yes. yes. And I think one of the things that I worry about as my kids do grow older, Melissa, is, is that secrecy. And not only do they get moodier <laughs> with hormones, but, but they start to value privacy. They want to shut and lock the bedroom door. They don't want mom and dad as much. They don't want to talk to us. And so you, know, you want to respect their boundaries, but how do you make sure that that door of communication stays open with your kids? Oh, Summer, that's a, uh, forgive me for sharing my own story a little bit Please here. Do. But, <laughs> so with my daughter, the, Let me back up and just say that sometimes it isn't secrecy, it's inability to articulate what they are feeling. They don't know how to use their words to communicate. And I mean, think about yourself. If somebody says, how are you doing? And the the emotions you're experiencing are so complex and layered, you cannot even formulate words around how you're feeling. Now imagine if you're 10 or five, you don't even have the language yet to articulate what's going on in you. So with my daughter, when she was in kindergarten, she started having a lot of strange physical symptoms and we brought her to the pediatrician and they couldn't figure out what was going on. They sent us to a specialist who also couldn't figure out what was going on. She had, you know, kind of like floating pain throughout her body and they had to rule out, you know, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and she was having uh, extreme stomach pains and headaches and we just couldn't figure out what was going on and finally they ruled everything out and the we went back to the pediatrician who reviewed all of the results and said maybe you need to bring her to a psychologist 
And my husband looks at the doctor and then looks at me and says, she sees one every day because, <laughs> you know, that's my field. <laughs> yeah. But the doctor said, I think you need to bring her to a play therapist who can maybe find out if there's something else going on. So I scheduled an appointment for my daughter and we went to see this psychologist who's no longer practicing, unfortunately, but we're sitting in the waiting room and out flounces this woman with a big pink hat on with feathers spraying out of it. And she's got a boa on and she has a magic wand and she comes out and she says, I'm looking for Princess Piper. And my daughter goes, that's me. And <laughs> off she goes with this, uh, this therapist. And after two sessions, the therapist came out to talk to me uh, and she said, are you aware that the teaching style in the classroom for Piper is quite loud. We don't yell at our house. And yet the teacher was yelling at the kids and would publicly shame one of the students in particular in front of the paras. And Piper, who was terrified of criticism, internalized all of that and was so shaken up and couldn't come home and say, mom, this teacher is freaking me out. So she was internalizing it and she developed a lot of physical symptoms because she didn't have the language to tell me. Fast forward to fourth grade, she started developing very similar symptoms again. She would wake up in the morning and couldn't go to school because she was in so much pain and she was feeling sick, brought her in and had them run some tests and then realized, wait a minute, the way my child deals with intense emotion is she turns them into physical symptoms. So I brought her back to the therapist and the therapist, after one session said, did you know the teacher found a note being passed around to all the girls that said at recess, everybody spit on Piper. She was being bullied with relational aggression by the girls in her classroom, and she couldn't put it to words. She, it wasn't that she was hiding it from me. She was 10. She just didn't know how to tell me how much pain she was in and couldn't put her finger on what was going on. So I think when it comes to children and understanding depression in children, we need to understand that their symptoms don't necessarily look like what the symptoms look like in adulthood. As adults, we, we feel fatigue, we feel uh, heaviness, we feel sadness, numbness, uh, appetite changes and sleep changes. But with a child, it can really come out as uh, physical complaints. It could come out as difficulty concentrating. It can come out as outbursts or crying or temper tantrums. So depression in children can look different and they don't have the vocabulary to tell us what's going on. That is hard. And I, hard. I think that is so good. Thank you for sharing those things to be looking for. Now, are there, are there other things that we need to be looking for besides yeah. those physical symptoms? Yeah. If, if the child changes in appetite, if suddenly they are eating way more than they usually do, or they're eating way less than they usually do, or if there's changes in sleep, if, they're, if they seem sleepy all the time, if they're wanting to take a lot of naps, or if they're not sleeping much at all. So changes in appetite and changes in sleep are common to depression in adults as well as in children. Feelings of guilt, if they're saying things like, if they're apologizing a lot, if they're feeling worthless, and they might not be able to articulate it in those kinds of words, but when you're seeing that they are um, apologetic, if they're having difficulty concentrating, if they're having irritability or angry outbursts, and then if they do talk about death more than normal, and all children have questions about death, but when they start bringing up conversations or mentioning death more regularly, that's a, that's a flag to notice just as we would with adults or uh, adolescents. Oh, freaks me out a little bit because my five-year-old, no, I, I don't, I don't 
thinks she struggles with depression, but she has gotten to the point where she's at that age where it's all very fascinating to her. And we've never really hidden from her when, you know, my mom's dogs had to be put down or my sister lost her her son at 22 weeks gestation, you know, so she'll talk about meeting her cousin in heaven and all of that. And then she'll just sometimes ask like, you know, mom, when am I going to die? Or mom, when are you going to die? And then I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, hopefully not for a long time. She's like, but I really want to see Jesus, you know? And like Mm -hmm. those, those things as a mom kind of freak me out a little bit, but I know it's coming from an innocent place. Sure. But at what point do those conversations and fascination with death kind of cross that line? Like, what are we looking for there? I will ask clients this question. Do you think about causing your own death? Do you ever think of, and you're here, let me just caution. Asking that question is not planting an idea. I can't plant that idea in you somewhere. I can't suggest it and have you go, oh, that is a good idea. We don't, we don't work that way. Our survival instinct is too strong. We don't entertain those thoughts unless we are at a place of despair where that feels like a solution. But we can ask, you know, if, if the child has been, you know, showing a lot of symptoms that feel like red flags to us, it's important that we ask that really hard question of, do you ever think of hurting yourself? Do you, do you have thoughts of dying? And these are difficult questions. And frankly, I would recommend, like I did with my own daughter, bringing her in and she was more able to tell this person what was going on than she could tell me. Maybe I was too close. Maybe she was worried of how I would respond, but uh, having a safe adult, maybe outside of the family would be a way of getting that question answered. I really appreciate that. And for the older kids, the ones who are in our home, maybe they're, you know, they're not the five, the 10 year olds, but they're the 15 year olds. Mm -hmm. They're, they're naturally kind of in that teenager place. How do we address these things without driving them away? Because I think as parents, that's something that we're afraid of because we may have pushed our parents away when we were younger. How, how do we have those hard conversations if they don't want to talk about it? It is so important that we do have those conversations though, because pretending like nothing is wrong does nobody, it doesn't do good for anyone. It does nobody any good. So it is important when we're not in the middle of an argument, when we're not in the middle of a conflict, when we're not yelling at each other. And I'm just going to make an assumption that this is a, everybody is listening is just in a normal family where emotions heighten. When those emotions are low, when we are having a conversation in the kitchen about breakfast and there is no serious tension going on, it is okay to ask a question to say, listen, I know this is not an easy conversation and neither of us might want to have it, but I have to ask you. And then you follow up with that. But it is important to ask those questions and ask it when that child is feeling fairly safe and asking it in a way that is calm and allows them to tell you the truth. If that child seems like they are in pain, they need you to address it. They don't have the skills. They don't have the tools. They don't have the resources to address it on their own. As a parent, it's on you to have that really hard conversation, but to do it when the emotions are low when tension is low and conflict is low. And then what do we do if they say, Mm -hmm. yes, I'm hurting? What are they looking for from us as their parents? How can we help? That's a great question to ask that child. I am so sorry that you're going through this. Tell me how I can help. And if they don't know, if they can't, they're like, I don't know. Then you say, okay, it is too important to me. 
to leave you in pain. So I'm going to make some phone calls and I'm going to take you in to see somebody. I'll go in with you. I'll sit with you if you want me to, or I'll sit outside if you want me to, but this is too important to leave you in pain. And then you make some phone calls according to what insurance company you have, who they cover. If you're looking for somebody who's faith-based, there are some really great faith-based agencies across the nation, but it is important that you don't leave your child to struggle, that you, if they can't tell you what they need, then you start to figure out what they might need. So I remember back to when I was a teenager and I'm the firstborn. Mm -hmm. So my parents, I actually had me very young and didn't quite know how to handle me. You were the practice kid. Oh yeah. And I gave them some practice. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, And so, I, I mean, I have you know, very vivid memories of those times with my parents where I understand so much more now where they were coming from, Yes, but where they would see me struggling, whether it was with just disobedience and being rebellious and junior high and high school or later substance abuse while living under their roof or all the Mm -hmm. things that I put them through Mm -hmm. and out of their love for me, which I understand now, man, they'd freak out. And they would, we'd yeah. get in huge fights and it was just very heightened emotions because they cared so much and it scared right. them seeing where I was at. So what would you say to that, that parent who's honestly just angry and yeah. sad and doesn't know how to just like, let's have a calm conversation over toast. They're not there. Like, how, what right. would you say to that mom? Right, okay. That's such a great question. First, to that mom, I would say, take a deep breath. And realize that you are the most powerful emotional conduit in that house. Those children, our children, are always looking to us to get in the emotional tone of the household. Like, say the children are in a lifeboat and you're the lifeboat captain and you are freaking out. You are losing it. You, are, you have very little control over your emotions. They're not going to feel all that safe. They're not going to feel all that confident in your ability to navigate that boat to a safe shore or a safe harbor. So parents, you are the adults in this situation. It is on you to calm yourselves down and understand that, yes, this is high stakes, but you need to take a deep breath and maybe seek help for yourself so that then you can be of sound mind and a stable comfort for your kid. Then. I think um, creating a different dynamic, if you change the way you engage with your child, they're going to follow suit. It might take a few practice turns. It might take a while to develop a new habit, but approaching your child differently so that there's a different outcome could be really useful. Also, there's a possibility of going to family counseling so that there's a third voice there or a fifth or sixth voice there who can speak into that dynamic and provide some objective, rational insights. But really, as parents, it comes down to you. You are responsible for setting the emotional tone. Another thing I just want to say, and as as an aside, when your child is depressed, telling them that this is the best time of their life is probably the most discouraging thing they could hear. If you're telling them that they should be happy, that they're, they have everything going for them, that they're young, they're fit. This is the best time of their lives when they are suffering. And this is a depression is a, it's a neurochemical disorder. First and foremost, telling them that this is the best time of their life could be just the most depressing thing to hear. So try to avoid telling them that, telling them to cheer up, telling them to to change their attitude. 
man, you know how hard that is for yourself to do. Imagine trying to have a parent impose that on them. So that's just a caution as an aside. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing is guaranteed to keep me from calmness as someone telling me to calm down, <laughs> yes, right. telling me how I should feel or right. yeah, yeah, look yeah. around. It could be so much worse. Yeah. It, it yeah, really yeah. helps. <laughs> yeah. Now for the, for the parent who has failed with this in the past, like they're like, okay, I, I see all the ways I've done this wrong. Now you said it, it could take time to reform habits, but realistically, What does that look like when there is a broken trust, when your child doesn't see you as a safe place? Is there a way of even over time, is there hope that that dynamic could change? Oh, yes. And it starts with sincere apology and attempts to make noticeable changes. I mean, in any relationship, marriage, friendship, sibling, parent, child, taking ownership of what went wrong. And saying, this is what I think I did wrong. This is what I am afraid happened. This is the outcome that it had on you. I am so sorry. I am going to do better. Uh, I might fail, but I am desperately trying to do better. I think goes a really long way. And here's the deal is that we know from all kinds of studies on childhood trauma and child maltreatment even, Children are resilient and they are forgiving and their loyalty is always, it might not seem like it, but their loyalty is always to their parent. And even in the most horrific situations, that child wants to go back to their mother and their father. They want a relationship with their parent. They're desperate for it. And so out of love, a deep, contrite, sincere apology can go a very long way. And, you know, I think as parents, sometimes we struggle with that because we want our kids to see us as strong. Yes. Humbling ourselves in front of our kids is sometimes one of the hardest things to do. And yeah. I, I often say the best example we can set is not how to live perfectly, but how to fail well. Yes. And so I think that that is a beautiful, beautiful picture mm-hmm. of just, you know, saying, I'm sorry, I screwed up. Will you forgive me? And let's, mm-hmm. let's start again. Now, you've mentioned it might be necessary to have your child sit down with some third party or, or seek that help. At what point do you call in the big guns? At what point do you go to the professionals? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. In the field of um, psychopathology or mental illness, we look at four Ds. The first one is, is their behavior deviant? Is it outside of their norm? Are they behaving differently than they normally usually do? You know, you've got a kid with a sunny disposition and suddenly they're crying a lot. Or you have a child that is uh, usually pretty active and suddenly they're just not moving much. So is their behavior deviant from what they normally do or how they normally are? And then the next question is, is it causing distress? Have you noticed that it's really getting to you. Their behavior is really causing you distress. You're upset, you're angry, you're frustrated with them, or other people in the family are feeling distress, or the child themselves. The child, him or herself, is feeling distressed. You can tell that they are, they're getting worked up, they're getting irritable, they're having tantrums, they're not eating or sleeping. So you're looking at distress. And then the third D is dysfunction. Is it getting in their way of being able to do the things they should normally be able to do, like get a good night's sleep or get proper nutrition? Is it dysfunctional that they can't focus on their schoolwork or they're um, not able to participate in activities outside with the rest of the family? So we're looking at deviance, distress, dysfunction. And then the last question, is it dangerous? Are they talking about death a lot? Are they uh, playing around with causing themselves harm 
are they just raising concerns for you that they're posing a danger to themselves? So those are the four things. And when it feels like two or more of those are present, it might be time to make a phone call to uh, your insurance company or to a local uh, mental health agency that services children. As moms, we look at ourselves, but we also look at our children when we are judging how we're doing. And I think that for a lot of people, when they see their children struggling in this way, and it's not something I think we talk about very much, but we take that on ourselves as a failure. We take that on as something I did wrong that my child would find themselves in this place. And it's a source of shame, which of course doesn't help us help our child because that comes across. What would you say to that mom who's like, honestly, I just feel like I screwed my kid up because they struggle with depression? Yeah. And I know it's an easy platitude to say, you've got to let that go. But you do have to let that go in the best interest of your child, helping them find their resilience again, helping them find that grit to get through this, helping them to find tools that will serve them well through the rest of their life in how to navigate hard emotions. That to me is success in parenting. How they look on the outside, how they present to other people at church is really negligible compared to how you are going to assist them to become strong adults. We are not raising children. We are raising adults. And uh, our job is to really help them find those tools. So yeah, we're not perfect. I've messed up big time with my kids and yet they have forgiven me and uh, we're moving forward. I need to make it about my kids and not about my own shame or regret or outside appearances. And we're not alone in that. I mean, what you're telling me is that this is not an isolated incident. This is, this is common enough (laughs) that you had answers to all my questions (laughs) (laughs) because this is something that we face. Yes. And I have personal experience. I mean, my goodness, my goodness. And this is, this is my field of expertise, my area of study. And yet my children did not get out of their childhoods unscathed. You know, and the thing is, is we would, here's the deal is we would like to protect our children from pain and adversity and hardship. And then when my husband got sick and died, there they were right in the midst of adversity, pain and hardship. And what we learned as our little broken family is that God doesn't change our circumstances to make us happy. He changes us through our circumstances to make us holy. That's a quote from Paul Tripp. And we have found that the circumstances of our grief in reaction to the death of my husband, their dad, has made us stronger, more resilient, more capable of understanding other people's pain. It has given us, each of us, depth and, and a drive to, to support other people, to ask, you know, to step into other people's grief. So your child, in their depression, or in their anxiety, or in their pain, you can help them find their resilience and their own strength. Because our job isn't to protect them from adversity. It is to help them find their faith in the face of adversity. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for taking the time to have this conversation and just for being so vulnerable yourself. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) And I can't wait to have you back because I feel like you have a lot that you would be able to share with us. And I I, I foresee many more conversations in our future. (laughs) Maybe some of them will be less depressing, huh? 
Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, Melissa, truly thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure having you. There are a few things that feel more desperate as a parent than watching our children suffer. And there are a few things that hurt as much as seeing our children suffer mentally and emotionally when we feel helpless. But I hope that leaving this conversation, you feel a little less helpless, that Melissa has granted you some tools, some inspiration and some practical guidelines to look for and some practical ideas to implement. Well, if you find that you could use some support on this journey, as always, you are welcome to join us on Facebook. Search for No Seriously, How Do I Do This at facebook.com or shoot me an email to summer at seriouslyhow.com. Until next time, friends, I pray that you never forget that you are loved, that you are not alone, and that we are on this journey together. Together.